0: Sylvester Stallone Fan Podcast, the podcast where we celebrate and analyze the career of Sylvester Stallone. As always, I'm your host, Craig Cohen, and I have with me Jeff Ferry. Get the hell out of my face before I shine my boots with your face. (laughs) And Jeff Hewlett.
1: Next time I want, you give.
0: (laughs) Very cool. So in case you haven't guessed, this episode we are doing one of Jeff Hewlett's favorite Stallone movies, Lockup.
1: Yeah, I've been waiting for this one for a while. So uh, I've been one. This is one of the ones I was thinking about, like Cobra, when we first started out, and just it took a while to get here. So pretty amped up for this one.
0: Yeah, and you're going to be running us through the movie after we after we get through a little bit of business up front. So um, last month in the UK on January 25th, Sylvester Stallone took part in an evening with event. That One of our listeners went to, Sico, who we've talked about on the show before, and he was nice enough to send in a report sharing his experience at that event. I'm going to read a little bit of what he sent. He says, Sheffield is about an hour's drive from Manchester, where I landed out of Amsterdam, and we drive up hillsides and through fog, and of course we are running late, and there just aren't any parking spaces, and everybody needs a trip to the bathroom. It's a typical weekend abroad for me. The venue is easily found because of the long queue line. Brits love to cue. Ushers brought me to my seat in the classically built venue, and within a few minutes, the show starts. Mike Reed, the interviewer most of the Brits in attendance know from the BBC, enters the stage to excited applause, and the imminent arrival of Stallone is heralded. Anybody who has ever been to a motivational seminar or political rally knows that Rocky music is often employed. Some, including me, would say misused to set the tone to what? What? Suggest the person you were about to see shares Rocky's credentials, but let me tell you, when that Bill Conti music hits and you know Sly is about to walk through the curtain, that theme takes on its true meaning. Sly's personal bodyguard takes up an unobtrusive position next to main curtain, but from my vantage point on the first balcony, I can see his imposing figure in a metallic Italian suit stand semi-relaxed with his hand folded in front of him. Goosebumps appear on my arms as images of Stallone's career are projected on a huge screen, and finally Sly walks through the curtain, and the cool, calm, and collected proper Brits all around me stand up in unison, and the noise goes from an exciting cheer into a huge wall of sound directed at Sylvester Stallone, who waves and smiles and settles on the huge couch where he won't be able to sit still on for the next hour and a half. The interviewer on a chair opposite remarks on how much couch space he's appropriated for himself, and Sly cracks a joke about how he needs the extra room to fit his ego. The tone of the interview was already set as Sly fends off questions about his childhood, uh, why he ended up in a pornographic movie, his singing abilities, to which Sly remarks, oh, I have a great voice, really, only it's in my brother's mouth. from what I've gathered an evening with Stallone will be televised and possibly promoted in other cities so I won't spoil uh, it by going into too much detail suffice it to say his entire career span is covered his relationship with his mother his artwork, why he wanted to be a professional polo player, why he had to sell his dog and how much it cost to buy it back Sly seeks to inspire and share his wisdom and does so eloquently only interrupted by the odd Englishman here and there who utters the sentiments, I love you, Sly, in the strained silence at odd intervals to which Stallone replies, always in character, is that you, Adrian? Stallone is quite the engaging speaker and deals comfortably with the crowd, making you feel you are in a living room engaged in conversation instead of seated in a theater. So comfortable that Sly manages to convey the awful truth that the end fight of Creed has been filmed in a football stadium not owned by Manchester United. Uh, the temperature did drop five degrees, but the uncomfortable silence only lasted one joke or maybe two. Stallone is brutally honest about his mistakes and regrets and bad choices and expounds on how they are part and parcel of you as a human being. It's not so much about the career, but the human being underneath it. It's about Sylvester Gardenzio Stallone instead of Rocky, Rambo or Barney. He does serve up the odd tidbit of information on the thought process behind his next projects. A big part of Creed is Rocky's reluctance to get involved due to his guilt over the death of Apollo. He could have thrown the damn towel after all. Last Blood deals with Stallone's need to give John Rambo the inner peace that character craves so much and that seems to elude him every movie. He attests he feels very blessed to be able to show an entire lifespan of these characters. Audience questions quickly turn into an outpour of hero worship, where mainly the women, the typical Bridget Jones's lower middle class big girl, dominate the microphone and demand cuddles and hugs in an arm wrestling competition or in a tearful, uh, barely articulate articulated request, please sly, I love you so much. Say that line from Cobra. The women make insane demands like such as, Make my husband propose to me. Stallone actually obliges and pops the question for the dude with a look of utter bewilderment on both men's faces. It was hilarious. There are the inevitable wannabe bodybuilders who ask about his favorite exercise or the wannabe German filmmaker who wants his movie distributed and seizes the moment to try to convince Stallone. Sly interrupts him and blurts, you're kidding me. Are you pitching me right in the middle of this thing? Fine, leave your stuff with my people. I will look at it. The guy hands his DVD over and leaves with his fist pumping in the air. It certainly fits the theme of the evening of not taking no for an answer and developing thick skin to deal with adversity. He admonishes us that life doesn't want us to succeed. Otherwise, everybody would be successful and there would be nothing special about it. That you have to be ruthless in its pursuit, not care what anybody thinks, and you have to be a little crazy, too. Someone asked if Sly regrets not getting a specific part. A lot of people yell, Terminator. Sly laughs and quips, nah, my head isn't square enough. (laughs) The question is repeated and he shrugs, grins, and says, basic instinct. Finally, someone says, empty warehouse, Rocky, Rambo, and Barney have to fight it out, and only one guy makes it out alive. Who? Stallone says Rambo, obviously. They wrap up to my deep regret, and Stallone tries to shake every hand in the entire place and waves goodbye. So it sounds like that was a really cool night, and uh, thanks to Sicko for sending in that
1: report. That was really well written, by the way. I have to send a note out for him to that one. That was pretty uh, all-encompassing, and and I was was gripped by the whole thing. Excited to see this thing now. It,
2: it, Better than the actual media reports I read about him, I would say. Yeah,
1: really. Yeah, and
0: you know what? It's funny. I was talking with Matt from Rambo Mania briefly about this the other night, and I'm really sort of slightly disappointed that they haven't done an event like this in the States yet. Yeah, really. And I think it would fly. I mean, if you look at, you know, like William Shatner did his one-man show, Shatner's World that we saw, and... This would be slightly different, but I, I think it would play in in a theater if they brought it over here.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, even, even like a, a medium-sized venue, there's tons of off-Broadway theaters up in the city that I could run this at.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so hopefully it does find its way to some kind of home media venue if they don't do it over here. I know last year they did an event as well, so I don't know um, if the UK is just more keen to stuff like this. But um, based on his fan base, I definitely think it would fly here. All right, so are you guys ready to jump right into lockup? Sure. All right, so it was released August 4th, 1989, and on a budget of $24 million, it made about $22 million. So uh, it didn't really set the box office on fire, but I'm sure at some point everybody that needed to make money on this movie made their money back. So, Jeff, without further ado, do you want to jump uh, on in and take us through the movie?
1: Yeah, absolutely. would would be my pleasure. Thanks for handing it over. One thing I, I want to mention before we start talking about it, and uh, wh- one of the things I think that kind of endears this movie to me and maybe you guys as well, is that uh, the prison that they filmed the movie in is in Rawway in New Jersey, and we're all in New Jersey. So, yeah, uh, the movies kind of tied to us a little bit.
0: Yeah, there's actually a, a local uh, indie wrestling promotion that throw monthly events in raw way, right at the rec center. And every time Mm -hmm. I drive there, I drive by the, uh, the prison and I always think of lockup.
1: Yeah. There's a couple of really good external shots of the prison that you see in, in the movie. So, uh, that's, that's the, the vision that Craig sees when he goes to the, the wrestling promotions. Yep. All right. So, the opening of this movie, I remember seeing this in the theater uh, when it came out, and, and I remember uh, the, the beginning of this movie really kind of plays with the viewer's heads, and it starts out with a photo montage. The camera's panning a bunch of photographs of, uh, of a father and son, or looks like a father and son, and then you see kind of a grown-up sly with, with an older guy, and a lot of things kind of pop up through this montage. at some high school football pictures, and then the camera kind of pans out and you see that Sly is there dusting off some old photos. So it looks like whatever he's doing, uh, these things have been sitting around for an awful long time. So just then a woman comes in, kind of lets you know it's an auto shop. She's looking for some mechanic work. You know, winds up being kind of a, a playful introduction to Sly's girlfriend. And the whole sequence is really misleading because you, you don't feel that he's a criminal at all, at all or he was locked up and... Through that this whole thing, he winds up playing with some neighborhood kids. He's playing football. It's, it's kind of snowy outside, and his girlfriend's there. And uh, finally, it comes to a point where he tells her that it's you know it's time for him to leave. He's got to go, and she's a little bit reluctant to let him go. And winds up driving him to the prison. And they keep they keep it pretty veiled even to the last minute. And he says he's got to go to work when he gets out of the car and, and walks into uh, the prison. And then we get the reveal that he's actually. A prisoner there and, and not somebody who just works at the prison so but he seems to be very friendly with all the guards and they know him by name and they're asking him how he was when he was outside so we get the impression that it's a very low security prison he's friendly with all the other inmates as well so were either of you guys misled by this uh this intro to this movie the first time you saw it uh craig cohen
0: um actually not really because unfortunately you know, trailers and commercials sort of spoil you on it or, or, you know, uh, um, let you know what, what you have in store. So I, it almost felt like maybe he was getting ready to report to prison, but I, I knew pretty much, I think the first time I watched this, that he was going to jail. And I actually really liked the fact that we didn't get a whole sequence that led up to him going to prison. I think this was a really good way to start the movie. And it saved them probably a lot of time. I, I think it was a really good starting point. And, and I also think the sequence is really good at setting up his character.
1: Absolutely. I completely agree with that. Jeff Ferry, what are your thoughts?
0: Well, first, I'm going to blow your mind. I hope you're both sitting
2: down. Um, <laughs> I up, am. Until, uh, up until last week, I'd never seen this movie. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. All right. Fresh perspective. Yeah. So um, I thought I had <laughs> until I sit down and start watching it, and I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm. I don't remember any of this. And uh, alluding to the beginning, the way that it's set up, I assumed he had just gotten out of prison. Ah. Mm-hmm. Knowing that it was called lockup, I'm like, okay, he just got out of prison. He's going to reopen a, what I assume is his dad's shop. So he must get caught doing something, get sent back to prison. Mm. I also realized at some point that I had mixed up the scene from Tango and Cash when he's in prison. <laughs> with another movie that he's not in that has Tom Selleck in it that also takes place in prison. So I'm like, I'm looking at, I'm like, these are not the characters I recognize. And then I had a a quick Google search. I realized I was thinking of a different movie called an innocent man, which also takes place in prison. Some of the stuff seems familiar to me, but I don't know if that's because maybe I saw it when I was little or just because pretty much every prison movie has the exact same (laughs) series of events that happens. But I mean, I, I mean, I was a little misled, uh, but like when he's going to the prison, uh, until he throws on his, until he's getting patted down by the guards, I didn't realize he was an inmate. I was like, that's odd. This, is, I, I want to go to this prison where you can just leave.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like one of those club fed type prisons that you, you yeah. hear about, very low security. And so, you know, Sly gets in there and uh, he winds up going to bed for the night and as Craig said, the introduction sets him up as a as a good guy, and and even when he gets into prison, you don't get that criminal vibe from him at all. so he's just seems like a guy doing his time for we don't even know exactly what he did at this point, but so sure enough, it's in the middle of the night, and uh, we see some guards coming into the prison, and there's some uh, great score pieces here where the, the the tension gets very high with the music building up in the background, and we see the guards coming in and slamming a piece of paper on the window and saying, you know, they're transferring a prisoner out. And in they come and they come smashing into his cell and, and breaking up all of his stuff. And we see his TV hit the floor and very, very, very great amount of tension in the scene. Well done by Sly, of course, who's protesting the whole thing, saying he's got the wrong guy. And the guards that are taking him away aren't giving him any answers at all. So he's getting dragged away, kicking and screaming. Uh, we see the picture of his girlfriend get smashed. And, and a couple of his other items get smashed as well. Uh, and he gets dragged and thrown into the back of a, of a, of a large van and, and driven away. And it's a, we're not exactly sure how long he's he's in the truck for because, I mean, we don't know exactly how many prisons there are in the local area around there. But you have to assume he's been in there for quite a while because, you know, when he, when he finally gets out, we see a lot of guns pointed at him as if he's a very high-risk prisoner And uh, we get the big reveal of Donald Sutherland, the villain. Uh, Warden Drumghoul comes out and and welcomes Sly to the gateway prison where it's pretty apparent that Frank Leone, Stallone's character, and uh, Warden Drumghoul have some past history together. So did you guys feel a lot of tension in this scene and up to the villain reveal? What did you think of the villain reveal, Jeff Ferry?
2: I thought it was a very interesting way to get him... 'Cause you watch the first couple minutes of his movie and you're like, Okay, I don't really see what his problem is. You're thinking he's gonna have to do something to end up in this other prison. Right. And no, they just, just come and snatch him in the middle of the night. And I mean, once Donald Sutherland shows up, you're like, Well, you know, here's our bad guy and he's a good one. I'm a fan of Donald Sutherland, he can mm. he can play He plays that right level of like evil like just an evil, malevolent bastard. And he, I mean he's been playing it right up to this day. He's in them Hunger Games movies playing basically the same role. I mean, it took me a little while to understand what his name was. <laughs> I'm like drum, drum, Google, drum, drum, gruel <laughs> I mean, it is a very a strange. Name. I'm like, ah, oh, they couldn't have gone with just Smith, you know? They had to give me this. <laughs> but it, it's a, it's a pretty interesting thing, and it keeps the tension up because even you, as the audience member, you don't know what's going on. You're like, why? What? What's going? On? Like, they won't tell anybody. That they give you no information. Uh, but the one thing that I did like, I feel like if you make this movie today. He gives you the backstory that you find out that the reason why he hates him is because he escaped from the previous prison that Donald Sutherland was the warden at. He was at Treadmore. I think if you make this movie today, I think you see all that. I feel like there would have been 15 minutes before where this movie started, where you saw him escape and you saw their whole backstory. And, you know, this movie would be two hours and 40 minutes long (laughs) instead of I don't know how long it is. I'm sure it comes in at a. You know, it's a it's it's under two hours. Yeah, it's like an hour forty eight. Yeah, mm. which for a movie like this is just about as long as you can go. If this movie was a half hour longer, you would want to you would want to drive off a cliff. It, you got to <laughs> yeah. keep it the right length. I mean, I can take any. I'm an '80s movie guy. I love these movies, but you can't go over. You can't go past two hours. <laughs> That's too
1: much. So Craig Cohen, what are your thoughts on uh, Frank Leone's? Uh, Tearing away from the the low-security prison and the reveal of the warden as the villain.
0: Yeah, um, real quick, I just want to say, Jeff Ferry, that's a a really great observation about how they would make this movie today. And I I definitely could see them totally telegraphing it from um, Sutherland's point of view about what they're going to do to him and then foreshadowing and create suspense that way. Instead, we get this wonderful sequence with Bill Conte, um, his music, which we all know and love from the most of the Rocky films. I think the sequence is well executed. It's well shot. The music adds to it. Um, and you really have um, a sense or the sense that from this point forward, Stallone's character is not going to be really treated in a fair manner or in a law-abiding manner. So uh, it really changes the stakes of the movie really quickly. And I, I think the the beginning of this movie is really, really effective. And again, to speak to Jeff Ferry's point, um, if they made that this today, we would have definitely had uh, an extra 20 minutes leading up to what
1: we get. I completely agree with you on that. And I like the fact that they save this reveal of all the backstory to sprinkle it into the rest of the movie in different places. So you don't get the entire story really in one shot you wind up getting it in different places. So speaking of, of effective uh, filmmaking, I think this next sequence is also particularly effective. And, and Sly is getting checked into this new prison. He's getting handled very roughly. And the lighting that they use in in the next couple of scenes, walking through these corridors and hallways as he's getting, uh, you know, smacked in the back of the head and talked down to uh, it's very dark, very dimly lit. Uh, we see a lot of uh, crumbling walls and and chipped paint and, All the doors and gates look old and and poorly maintained. So this prison, they're really giving off uh, the the feeling that this prison is a very, very tough place. So we wind up getting the reveal that Meisner, Amos's character, uh, is the guard in charge. Uh, He's the head guard, and uh, he's a pretty tough guy. He winds up getting Sly into a cell, pushing him into the cell, and uh, instructing his other guards to leave his handcuffs on overnight so that uh, Leone can get used to them. Uh, we see some great physical acting, some nonverbal acting by Sylvester Stallone in the in the cell. Uh, we see him trying, struggling with the cuffs a little bit in frustration, and and you see the barren, terrible-looking cell with this old, crappy bed and some some really tattered linens to throw on it, and he just looks very, very uh, downtrodden. A very well played scene, in my opinion. Uh, So I I think this is this opening arc that we just went through. I think does a really good job of taking the viewer through the happy high points of of Sly outside of the prison and his life and his girlfriend and and the shop and playing with the kids and where he was prior and then really tearing him and the and the viewers down at the same time. So uh, Craig Cohen, any thoughts on Sly getting checked through the prison system?
0: No, I, I think you ran it down pretty well. And, and the thing for me is, every time I've watched this movie, it's it's really easy to get caught up in this movie and forget where it's going. And every time I watch this movie, this sequence really sort of indicates or makes you ask, well, how the heck is this going to have a happy ending for, yeah. for him? So I, I think they do a, a, a great job setting up the... You know, the really dire situation that he's being put in and going from this sort of cushy, country club like environment to real hard labor.
1: Yeah. Jeff Ferry, your thoughts?
2: Yeah, it does a great job with uh not even comparing it as much to his the life you see him living outside, but you got a few minutes of him at his first prison where they're walking in, hey, how you doing? How are the kids? Blah blah blah. And now you're seeing him getting processed into a real prison, a maximum security prison, which is nightmarish to begin with like if you put yourself in his shoes that's something you never want to be a part of and for every indignity he's getting getting slapped getting pushed you know he just has to take it there's there's no recourse it's not like when you're out you know you're not at starbucks where you can turn around and tell him you're like hey what are you doing buddy like anything you do you're just going to get at worst in your best case scenario you're just going to get hit by the guards like this is our introduction to john amos who is awesome I mean, he is great in everything. Good guy, bad guy, or whatever. He's always in command when he's on screen. When he first showed up and he gives his little Meisner speech, I was like, oh, I hope they don't do this. I hope they don't make him a, you know, a one-trick bad guy in this movie. And I was very pleasantly surprised when he had a real character to him. Like, he's like a real tough SOB, but he's, in his own way, fair. Like he's just not—he's not Donald Sutherland. He's not a black hat bad guy. He's just a tough guy in a tough prison. So I really—I mean, I really enjoyed his character in this movie.
1: I did too, and I—I I love the fact that this early on we're not sure at this point whether Meisner is a villain or not. Uh, we just know that he's a tough guy and he's—he's he's kind of playing along with the warden's plans at this point, and uh, we're not really sure where his character is going to go, and we, we've got a, a quite a few other. Uh, sub villains to meet as we go through this. But one thing that I thought was particularly effective here was when Sly goes to sleep, the transition between night and day, they're out. they show a scene outside the prison with two young kids riding bicycles uh, down a, a road a, in front of the prison. And I thought that was really effective to kind of show the the fleetingness of the freedom that Sly once had uh, as opposed to the next shot which is a shot inside the prison where they're pretty much opening the floodgates in the morning and all the prisoners are coming out of their cells and heading towards, I guess, the cafeteria for the breakfast period. And we see uh, Leone still handcuffed, being escorted by two guards on his way. We don't know exactly where, but he winds up meeting another, I guess, villain at this point, gets set up as another villain. That's the, the guard, Manly, who uh, shoves him into a, a the, the death chamber with the electric chair and he kind of seals him in the room, and we're not exactly sure why until the warden shows up uh, outside the room, and we get a little bit of a reveal after a, a short speech about him restoring the electric chair, uh, and we get the inference that the death penalty used to be legal there and, and ha- is no longer legal, but Drum believes that it should be, so we get a little insight into, into who he is and how he thinks, but we do get some background information on the two. We get to learn that Leone escaped from uh, drum Ghoul's former prison uh after being denied a visit with his dying mentor who we we know is the the guy that owned the the shop that we saw Leonian in early in the movie and uh through through the use of his lawyer and the media i guess somehow uh, drum Ghoul was disgraced and demoted down to this terrible gateway prison that he's working in now so we also learn that that Leonie has six months left on his sentence and Drumghoul commits to making that uh hell for him so we get a bit of more setup. As to what's coming up in the in the near future for Leone's character, so uh Jeff Ferry, any thoughts on the uh the death chamber review? Uh, I mean, I don't know who chose
2: to stage it in this area, but it was an excellent choice. This is a scene that could just as easily be written to be in the the warden's office mm-hmm. or to be in his cell but uh I mean, it's a great choice for two reasons: one it'll obviously comes into play later, but two. I mean you can't have a more obvious what he's trying to get across to Stallone of like I have you there's nothing you can do either by actually dying you're going to die in here or just by I'm going to find a way to keep you in here for the rest of your life either way I've got you I own you you will die in here because basically you killed my career I'm going to kill you one way or another I mean it's, it's certainly a great setup. I mean I think they're wrong. I think uh I think it still was legal to execute people in New Jersey at that point, but or, or I don't know where they're supposed to be. But I, I also don't know why I do enjoy that the place keeps their electric chair even though they don't they don't need it.
1: <laughs> For decoration <laughs> like, purposes. Yes. And Bad they give them they money put, to restore it.
2: Yeah, they put Christmas lights on it during the holidays, they really spruce <laughs> it up, Santa sits in it, I guess.
1: Easter bunny at, at Easter time. <laughs>
2: uh
1: Craig Cohen, any thoughts on this segment of the film?
0: Well, I had visions of like Donald Sutherland bringing that electric chair to like the uh, American Restoration dude on History Channel (laughs) (laughs) and like getting it restored and getting a quote for how much it would be and shipping it back to Jersey. Um, (laughs) But I actually I I really like this scene. And like Jeff Ferry pointed out, setting it in that chamber was so much more effective. and. It's an odd little bit of foreshadowing, too, because you you really can't imagine that it's going to end there. So I think that's a nice little sort of setup of, you know, putting the gun on the table, if you will. And I really like the fact that they sort of, you know, reverse the roles a little bit. And you have this criminal who's in jail, who's seemingly a decent guy. And then you have this warden who might have been good at one point, but now is beyond corrupt and more just obsessed it's almost like um you know a Herman Melville type situation where he you know like uh, Leon is his um is his white whale if you will and he he can't get past that obsession so I really thought that they played it really well and you know I, I'm not gonna say that you feel sympathy for uh, Donald Sutherland's character because I don't think you're supposed to so so I think the way that it was presented and the way it played out was really effective in terms of really setting up the fact that the deck is going to be stacked against Stallone's character and we're really going to hate this dude by the end of the movie.
1: Absolutely and I love the fact that they had uh, they had Leone trapped inside a cage essentially with a device that's used to execute people and Donald Sutherland was actually outside uh, speaking to him through the glass so I that was a, a particularly effective uh, way to, way to convey the mood of the scene and, and the hopelessness that uh, Leone was supposed to feel at the time. So after after they let him out, there's some more rough treatment uh, at the hands of uh, Manly and his partner. A couple of uh, rough elbows and and punches to the face, and we get to go through this delousing process where they put Leone in a room. And they essentially tell him to hold his breath for 30 seconds while they put this noxious gas in the room and they see you know, not to breathe it. But, of course, the warden is there to watch this. And when it gets to the 30 second mark, he grabs the guard's hand and stops him from releasing Leone, saying he can take more. And we, we see uh, Sly suffering uh, with sucking and trying not to suck in any of this gas. And they finally release him. He comes flying out and gets smashed into a fence, which I think is another great display of uh, Stallone's acting ability, his nonverbal acting ability to display uh, some some great pain as he's choking and kind of lying on the floor, writhing in pain. So that was a a really uh, particularly uh, demeaning sequence for his character. Uh, Do either of you guys have any particular thoughts on uh, that delousing process and what we find out about the warden and, and how sadistic he can be? uh, through this scene, Craig Cohen?
0: Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really tough sequence to watch because like you said, Stallone does some really great non, you know, nonverbal acting in it. And I also really like the fact that you see that these guards, um, or at least some of these guards aren't completely under the warden's control, or at least still have a level of compassion that some of the other guards don't have. And, um, Again, this is really going to be the first of many examples throughout the movie where we really just see uh, Stallone taking his level of his acting to a level that we haven't seen in quite a few films.
1: Uh, Jeff Ferry, your your thoughts?
0: Yeah, I mean, he
2: he definitely has you believing that they're uh, they're pumping uh, some sort of chemical in there. I mean, we we as people watching realize there's nothing in there, but when that guy comes up in there and there puts his hand on there and the You know, it keeps the sequence going. You can just imagine being in there trying to hold your breath, praying. I mean, you don't even know if the guy's ever going to lift up his hand. You could be in there until they'll let you start sucking in the the gas and let you die. Maybe this is the way he's going to get you. But again, as we've said before, I don't think nobody nobody does pain quite like Stallone does. You feel it whether he's getting punched or shot or, you know, getting gassed. I mean, he does, He, like you said, he does the nonverbal thing very well. And like I mentioned about the guards earlier, that one guard who has his hand on the switch has that look on his face like, I'm not going to tell the boss no, but I am not on board with this. Like, the warden has his guys. Like, he's got Manly and the Goon Squad, but many of the other guards, even when they're getting told to do the rough and, you know, nasty stuff, they kind of do it with that look of like how you probably do something your job. You don't want to do like, oh, uh, I'm going to do this, but only because the boss is sitting here.
1: Yep. So the next scene out is a, a familiar scene to to anybody who's watched any prison movies or TV shows. Uh, and that's a scene out in the prison yard. So uh, Leone is away from all of this stuff. He's he's recovered from this experience and he's walking out into the yard, which is packed with other inmates and as he's wandering through, of course, as would be expected uh, in any scenario for a good guy in a prison, he winds up getting into a, a kind of a turf scuffle with yet another villain that we introduce, and that would be the character of uh, Chink Weber. And uh, he gets into this uh, this situation where uh, any place he he tries to settle down is is this other guy's uh, is Chink Weber's territory, and uh, he immediately hones in on Leone's necklace that his girlfriend gave him as a good luck charm before uh, this whole thing started. So that winds up almost resulting in a fight until Officer Braden, who was the officer who uh, had his hand held on the uh, gas chamber uh, lever by Drumgool a few minutes ago, uh, steps in to try to break this up. and And he swore that he had seen Chink Weber holding a shank or an ice pick in his hand which was uh, quickly pawned off and to another inmate and passed through the crowd and and hidden away so that they that wouldn't be able to catch him with it and uh, the only witness to this uh, weapon being held was Leone who refuses to rat out Chink Weber, uh, even though we, we know there's going to be some some trouble there in the future I think this is uh, Leone's attempt to uh, get in good with the rest of the uh, the prison inmates and let them know that he's not a snitch so it's a little bit of a of a game to try to establish himself as as someone who's at least semi trustworthy. So, you guys uh, have any thoughts about Chink Weber, the introduction of yet another villain? We've already seen so many, uh, and the odds are quickly stacking up against uh, Leone. So, uh, Jeff Ferry, any thoughts on Chink Weber or this scene?
2: Yeah, you're thinking right now. This guy better start getting himself some allies because he's starting to you know really <laughs> his enemy list is getting long. And uh, if I saw Sonny Landham, who plays Chink, uh, running around out there, I'd be pretty worried because I Mm. saw Predator, and he's a scary (laughs) individual.
0: But you know what? In Predator, he didn't really put up much of a fight against the Predator. It's all of like four seconds between the time he leaves him on that log and and (laughs) you hear him crying out. Yeah, yeah,
2: I assume that's because Sonny Landon was like, uh, listen, I'm not I'm not going to let you show me get killed on screen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so they were like, uh, we'll teach you. We'll we'll fix you in the edit. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: so the next scene where it's a quick transition to the next scene, and it, it seems like Leone has somehow wound up getting a job mopping up uh, inside. So we get we get the introduction of Tom Sizemore's character here, and that's Dallas. And, uh, this, I, I believe this is Tom Sizemore's first starring role. Yeah. Uh, he had some bit roles in a couple of movies before, but this is his first time uh, being, being in a starring role. So he, uh, claims to have been in the prison with Leone when he broke out. And Leone, of course, being, uh, being a smart guy tries to trick him and find out if he really was there by saying, uh, asking if he was from the a block in the old prison to which, uh, Dallas replies that he was. And it turns out there was no a block. So, it is revealed early on that that Dallas is a kind of a, a bit of a, a charlatan, if you will. And so at this point, uh, Leone introduces us to his DTA or don't trust anybody philosophy. So we get the idea that he's been in prison long enough to know that he can't truly trust anybody, even if they seem friendly enough. So Dallas winds up giving us yet another rundown on on all the guards that are in eye shot. So we get to hear about Messner. Uh, Meisner, rather, is on top. Manly and his partner are uh, the enforcers for the warden. And uh, Dallas sets himself up as the typical uh, I-can-get-you-anything-you-need guy in the prison. I think there's one of those in every prison movie yeah. and television show uh, that's ever been made or ever will be made. So there's always that one guy. And um, so the scene shifts to Dallas trying to get Leone a job in the auto shop. I was trying to make friends with him, and we wind up meeting eclipse so uh who is another winds up being a, a uh, an ally finally we get to see some some good guys showing up so but the funny thing about eclipse that i noticed that is that he has some knowledge that there's something going on between leone and Drumghoul. so apparently word has been getting around that uh there there is some trouble between the two of them and, and eclipse doesn't want to get involved so uh, of course you know leone understands and he he you know, leaves uh, peacefully and, and doesn't make a scene out of it. So when we see Leonie back in his cell, we find out that the some of his belongings have been transferred in, and we see the destroyed picture of his girlfriend. And, of course, uh, Manly to, comes to the door to to needle him about it, and I guess you're supposed to understand that they kind of messed up a lot of his stuff in an effort to to get him angry or upset him some more and, and put him off his game. And um, Of course, you know, Sly plays it smart yet again. And uh, doesn't doesn't rise up to the occasion and doesn't give them the satisfaction. But uh, at the same time, we see his girlfriend who just found out about the transfer and is a little bit uh, upset. But they're not letting her know anything or speak to the warden. So to stop here for a minute and talk a little bit about the Dallas character and the introduction <clears throat> of the Eclipse character, uh, Craig Cohen, your, your thoughts on either one or both of those?
0: Well, it was great seeing Frank McRae as Eclipse because. He um starred with Stallone way back in fist, right, so that was a neat little sort of callback and I think that this film really would have worked during that late seventies run that Stallone mm-hmm. had because I think this film is really sort of unfairly pegged as just you know an action film where really it, it for the most part is just a you know a prison drama,
1: yeah. Exactly.
0: Yeah. And I also think that um the one thing about this movie is you see Tom Sizemore at the beginning of his career, and unfortunately his career has gone a certain way, and his personal life has gone a certain way, but his performance in this movie is really good, and I also think overall that this movie is full of great supporting performances, which I think also – a lot of you know your stock action movies don't have. So I mean, this movie is really, really performance-driven, and I and I think everybody's utilized you know in a in a pretty good manner.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I, I this this movie does seem to be uh, miscategorized in my mind. Jeff Ferry, any thoughts on uh, miscategorization of this movie and the uh, introduction of Dallas and Eclipse?
2: Well, like you said, it's. Uh... Prison movies are filled with characters like this. Every prison movie has a Dallas, the guy that, I'm the guy that can get you things. I mean, we all know who it is. Uh, and then there's always a character. It's usually a character like Frank McRae. It's the the guy that can, he's going to be your helper. The person's really going to help you out. But what makes them good is these are, this is excellent casting. Like Tom Sizemore is great in the role. Frank McRae is great in the role for the guards. John Amos is great in the role. I've only got, one, in the whole movie, all the casting's excellent except for one person, and I'll bring them up and I'll rip them at some point. <laughs> but, uh, it's very average material that they're working with. But those guys elevate it because they're great character actors, and Stallone can just, is a great lead for a movie. I mean, if you have three other guys in here, yeah, it's a, it's a very average thing. It's an average script. It's, it's a, I mean, you're, you're doing a prison movie. You're really not breaking any new ground here. I mean, you have a few little twists and turns that you add, but we've all seen prison movies. We've seen ones that are worse, ones that are better. It's your actors that are going to elevate your stuff, and I think they really do. Yeah,
1: ex- Excellent observation.
0: Yeah, and actually, while you mentioned it, Jeff, I want to talk real quick about um, an interview I found with director John Flynn regarding how you make a Stallone film around this time period. So on lockup, he says, lockup is a strange lesson in how Hollywood movies are made. Stallone had a window, quote unquote, which means the guy was available for a certain window of time. Larry Gordon had a terrible script set in a prison. Stallone calls James Woods and asks if I'm any good as a director. Woods says, yeah, he's a good director and you ought to work with him. So we have a director and a star, but no script. All we have is a theme, a guy escaping from prison. So we hire Jeb Stewart, who was then one of the hottest writers in Hollywood, to rewrite the script, and we go off looking for prison locations. Now we have a star, a theme, a shooting date, a budget, a studio, but we still have no script. So we all go back to New York and move into a hotel where Larry tortures Jeb and Henry Rosenbaum into writing a script in record time. Meanwhile, I'm going around scouting prisons. We finally found one in Rawway, New Jersey. Jeb and Henry were writing the script as we were making the movie. New pages would come in every day. There was one day when I was on the third tier of a cell block in Rawway Penitentiary, and I had nothing to shoot. I had my movie star, all these actors, and a great location, and the pages were on their way. So we sat around and bullshitted with the prisoners. Stallone is a smart guy and a very underrated actor. If I ever needed a better line, he'd come up with one. Stallone is a really hard worker I had no problem whatsoever with him so uh, that speaks a little bit uh, to your script uh, uh, problem uh, Jeff Ferry or no script I I mean
2: (laughs) am I crazy or is there at least a half dozen Stallone movies where you have that story of like yeah we didn't have a script we just uh, we're just making it up as we went along it's a great way to make a
0: movie yeah, I guess it it all deals with that window that he had back then. He'd have a couple months to make a movie and they had to make the movie during that time or else the movie wouldn't get made.
1: <laughs> that is a very interesting insight into into Hollywood at the time, because, you know, I, I'm not as in tune as you guys are uh, with, with some of this stuff. So I, I didn't really pick up on the fact that the script wasn't quite as good or up to snuff. I, I really didn't pick up on it as well i i, I don't know why but it, it didn't stand out to me as much all right so next up we see that leone has yet another job i guess he's really trying to keep himself busy and keep his uh his nose out of trouble he's working in a what looks like some sort of a boiler room and he's uh scraping some some residue off of uh, some some equipment down there and of course uh in comes dallas once again who is apologizing for getting him this uh this pretty crappy job but Uh, Despite that, Leone is pretty upbeat, and they're joking around quite a bit, and he's trying to get him to, trying to get Dallas to help out, but at this point, Dallas takes Sly into another room, which we'll later find out is called the well room, and uh, he pulls out a blueprint and outlines a, uh, an escape plan that he's come up with uh, that involves uh, shimmying across steam pipes and, and jumping into some trucks that are going in and out, but at this point, we get some really good insight into just how smart Leone's character really is and how uh, well-seasoned he is with being in prison. So uh, he pretty much shreds Dallas's entire escape plan and um, kind of calls him out on the the, the idiocy of shimmying across the 160-degree steam pipes and, uh, and, and falling and, and pretty much getting himself killed. So Dallas crumples up the blueprint and storms out. And on his way out, Leone asks for a cigarette, which he promptly uses to drop down a well. And I guess in an effort to see if there's some flammable materials down there or if it's a viable escape route. So um, any any guys, any thoughts on this Dallas escape plan? I was wondering if either of you thought that that Dallas was trying to set him up this early on. Craig Cohen.
0: No, I, I didn't pick up on 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 any kind of sellout. I think this scene was just really illustrating How, I don't know if advanced is the right word, but you know, the, the, how Stallone's character is on a completely different level than Dallas. And you almost get the feeling that Dallas ended up where he is because of who he is. Basically, a guy like that really had no other option but to end up in prison. And I don't know, it really showcased the divide there between, Leone and Dallas and and almost sort of if nothing else it telegraphs um him selling him out later down the movie but that's something you at least I appreciated after the fact.
1: Hmm. Jeff very thoughts on this scene?
2: Actually uh when he first goes up to him and lays out his plan I thought he might be like oh okay I was he's setting him up. You know, this is he's trying to get him to go out and escape for him to get caught. But then when Stallone looks at the plan and smacks him down for how stupid it is, I forgot about that because I'm like, okay, well, the point of this scene is to show how smart Stallone is. So I kind of forgot about Dallas. So later on, when he gives him, you know, when he turns out to be the rat, that actually worked in his favor since I had I'd already excused him from it. I'm like, oh, it's not it's not going to be him. I mean, eventually I thought about it again because I realized he's Tom Sizemore. But. (laughs) It, it gave me, it didn't, I wasn't watching him the whole movie to make sure he what he was up to, because he was always a little shifty, so you always had to keep an eye on him. Mm. Then you just kind of thought he was a loser. I'm like, ah, he's just a loser. Like, he's got this really crappy plan, Stallone puts him in his place, and I just forgot about him. It actually made the ending, or the ending when he kind of is revealed, that much better for me.
1: Mm either one of you guys have thoughts on the dropping the cigarette the lit cigarette down the pipe into the into the water uh, do you think he was just doing some uh, some some research and getting to know uh, the area so if he did need to make an escape he he had a, a some ideas on how to how to go
0: yeah yeah I think it was one of those instances where he was just taking advantage of the tools he had at his disposal um namely the cigarette at that moment mm-hmm. it's a great little it's a great little Uh, insight into how uh the character's mind works
1: yeah excellent jeff fair you think you have any thoughts on that
0: Uh, he strikes me as a type of
2: guy who even if he has no plans on escaping could tell you the rotation of the guards how high the walls were where the well goes where this does like he needs to know all that stuff he's got to know everything even if he has no plans to do anything, like he would want to know who all the important people are, who are the good guards, who are the bad guards, who are the ones that like will sell you out, who are the rats. He's just an intelligent, you know, jail person, a person who knows all that stuff.
1: Yeah, excellent I don't point. Think
2: he I don't think he could not know those things.
1: Yeah, I'd forgotten to mention that during this sequence, he also seemed to know uh, when the trucks were coming and going. He already knew the guards uh, schedule, so it seems that like Le- Leone is picking up on a lot more than the viewers see him picking up on. So I guess there's a lot of things that we don't see that he's actually out there. They're doing so. The next scene is another uh, prison movie or TV show staple, and that's a mess hall scene. So we get uh, we get Leone and uh, and Dallas in line getting their food, and of course it's disgusting slop. Uh, but this scene is introduces yet another one of the uh, the good guys, if you will, or quasi-good guys that winds up in Leone's uh, group of, of friends is uh, what they call the kid at the beginning. And Frank, uh, Leone, steps in and, and saves this kid from some trouble with another inmate at his table. And we're not really even sure why he picked him at all, but he, he just seemed to identify with the kid for some reason or another, a troubled kid. And uh, they, they said that he's in for murder, and you get, I think it was a double murder, actually. And so they're kind of goofing around and, and at the table with him to and just kind of get to know him a little bit. And we see uh, out of the corner of, uh, out of the corner of his eye, uh, Leone notices a, a seemingly serious looking inmate come walking in to the mess hall. And he immediately realizes that this looks like a uh, potential murder or a stabbing coming up. And he he tells the other guys at the table to, to put their legs out in the aisle and be ready to move uh, as soon as something goes down. So. I think this is just another way to establish that Leone is very uh, prison savvy, and we also get a little couple of little glances from um, Chink Weber's character over towards Leone during this sequence to to let us know that that rivalry is still there, and, and all is not not forgiven by uh, Leone refusing to rat him out about the shank. So, you guys have any particular thoughts about the kid who they wind up naming first base? throughout this scene and the potential rivalry that still exists between uh, chink Weber and Leone at Craig Cohen.
0: Um, yeah, I think this is a character you're waiting to sort of be introduced. You, you know, that there's going to be a character in this movie that, um, is going to have to act as the catalyst for, you know, Leone to sort of come unglued. And sadly, this, this character is, is the guy. I think it's a good scene. And I think it sort of calls back to the the way we saw Leone acting at the beginning of the movie, where he's got this sort of fatherly instinct, and like you said, he's just genuinely a, a good guy. Um, so I, I think it's a, a really effective scene for that. Um, I love the build up through this movie to the you know the encounter that we finally get with Chink. But I also wanted to talk real quick uh, in this mess hall scene about the fact that they used a portion of the prison population as extras in this movie. (laughs) They actually, out of the 1,900 prisoners in the film, 225 were utilized on shooting days, and they were paid um, a minimum wage of about $26 a day where um, some of the guards um, from the prison that were used got the Screen Actors Guild rate uh, for extras of $93 a day. So uh, pretty neat, and uh, and I I don't know how prison films utilized real prisoners prior to or after lockup, but um, if you look in the prison yard or the mess hall – you're seeing some real genuine uh, prisoners, which I think really adds to the overall makeup or flavor of this movie.
1: I agree with you on that, especially in the yard scenes. The actual prisoners themselves really add to the gravity of the film. So Jeff Ferry, uh, first base character, a rivalry between Chink Weber and Leone or Mess Hall thoughts in general?
2: Well, remember when I said I was going to rip somebody? Um, Here we go. Actually, I actually lied. I'm going to rip two people (laughs) because I forgot about him. He's not even terrible. He is just vanilla. All these other guys are actors that really fill up their roles and are, you know, they're they're punching above their weight. And he's not. He's just I mean, he's the guy that shows up for lack of a better term. He shows up to die. He might as well have a sign around his neck that says, I'm going to die. (laughs) I'm the innocent of this picture something bad will happen to me it's all a matter of how exciting they can make it but i will die so you have to like me because i'm nice he's just like i realized the guy's actually from new york but he seems like a person who's not from new york putting on a new york thing hmm. that's just the way it's like it's like he went too big i don't know what it is he just like up until now it's like every person they've hit is a home run this guy's awesome this guy's awesome this guy, and then it's like this guy comes in and it's just like oh okay so you're here and i really wish they'd stop talking to you and go back to the characters that i enjoyed and i don't know if we're gonna get around to the other person i don't like i'm gonna mention it now i hate his girlfriend (laughs) darlene flugel oh oh, she's terrible i mean there's a reason why i don't know who that is because she probably never got another acting gig (laughs) i don't know maybe she was great on broadway or something but she is horrible like i could care less what she's doing
0: like, I'm I, like, I, he's better off in prison. He should never go back to you. <laughs> the only other thing I remember her from is to live and die in L.A. She was the prostitute that, who's the guy from CSI? Um, uh, William Peterson? Yeah, that William Peterson is sort of taking advantage of and holding over her head that, um you know, that he could bust her at any moment. It's a really, really terrible relationship and – uh a really cool movie that deserves to be talked about uh, at some other time. And actually, um, maybe I will uh, when we get around to doing my Books to Movies podcast. Oh, that was nice. Dying my drop-in there.
1: There you go, man. <laughs> get, to, get that plug right in the middle. Don't even wait until later.
0: That was completely unplanned. So You guys set me up for it. So,
1: yeah. <laughs> Jeff Ferry's got a book out, by the way. And... <laughs> oh, so uh, next up is the uh, the yard uh, the big mud football game, and uh, th- it starts out we we get some scenes of some guys playing football and, and Leone is walking out with the kid first base, and he's talking about his philosophy of staying positive while in prison. So actually. The funny part about this story is that, you know, he's he's rattling off this whole my my body is here, but my mind is somewhere else. And that that kind of harkens back to a speech he gave in Lords of Flatbush, doesn't it, Craig?
0: Yeah. And actually, um, one of our listeners, Steve Ricardo. Hi, Steve. Um, We love seeing you on Facebook when you uh, interact. And he uh, did send us an email and he did point out. That um your body being in one place but your mind doesn't have to be is almost the same speech that Sly used in Lords of Flatbush when he's telling his friend to pretend he's a bird flying in the sky. So, yeah, it was definitely a, a cool callback. And and like we said earlier, this definitely feels like a movie that would sort of work in that, you know, in that late 70s time period. So uh it's cool that I'm sure that was a callback that they made on purpose.
1: Agreed. Agreed. It seems like a a little bit of a throwback moment, but uh, as they're walking through the outskirts of the prison yard, uh, they're noticed by Chink Weber, who's out playing football and is uh, trying to get Leone to get into the game. So he winds up throwing a football at him to get his attention. And uh, when that doesn't work, he picks the obvious choice of uh, trying to get into a, a, a bit of an altercation with the kid, which kind of provokes Sly into playing in the football game, which kind of turns into what seems like the Super Bowl almost, because everybody (laughs) and their mother shows up to watch this. All of a sudden, every guard is out, the warden's out, Meisner's out. There's prisoners everywhere cheering for both sides. So uh, this rivalry gets pretty big. And uh, throughout the course of the game, there's a lot of violence going on, and and it seems like they're really targeting uh, Leone. Even some of his own teammates seem to be sabotaging uh, his game. So I, I, this is where the Eclipse character, who's watching out in the out in the uh, the outskirts there, gets annoyed enough and winds up coming into the game and, and manhandling uh, one of Leone's teammates who is sabotaging him and begins to play on Leone's team, which is kind of the turning point for the game. And they wind up through a bunch of more painful plays, wind up actually. Winning the game, and uh, which is really cool that, that, that Eclipse gets a touchdown and does a little bit of a touchdown dance. But the, the triumph is very short-lived, of course, because uh, Chink Weber decides to get a cheap shot in and tackles uh, Leone from behind or a little off to the side without him even seeing it coming and grabs a hold of the necklace that he wasn't able to get from Leone before. And I, there's a couple of interesting little bits, uh, very short little bits at the end of the scene that I thought were really interesting. And and that is you see the warden walking off. He's up top of the wall in, in his office and you see Meisner noticing that the warden is walking away and you, you start to get the little bit of a seed planted in your head that maybe Meisner is noticing things that are going on and he's not exactly happy with them. So uh, I thought that was a really cool little bit there. And, um, we get the uh, the idea that maybe Chink is doing this on purpose. And we also get that um, Manly is also in on it as he stops the other inmates from helping Leone's character and tells them that uh, he has to make it back in on his own. It's his own problem. So, guys, thoughts on the uh, Mud Super Bowl, Jeff Ferry?
2: Yeah, it's amazing. They let those guys, um, every single person in the uh, prison got to come out and watch that football game. I mean that was that was nice of him. Yeah, it was a very. I mean, again, it's a prison movie, and more than likely you've seen a football game in a prison movie. I mean, if you saw the Longest Yard, the entire movie kind of revolves around that. Mm -hmm. But it's a great game. Like again, Frank McRae comes in to play a little football. He was a professional football player, so I guess he could. You know, he could play a little bit. I mean, there's some good beats in it. Um, it always it always makes me laugh when he takes the um the little the ring away from her, the necklace away from him. Because up until that point, I keep wondering, like, they let him keep this necklace in prison? <laughs> it seems like the type of thing you're not allowed to have in a maximum security That's prison. Yeah.
1: yeah, gold <laughs> necklace, but, yeah.
2: I mean, story wise, I realize why he's got it, but yeah, it is a little odd. Yeah, and you get the little beat there from, um, from Meisner. This was probably when you realized that, um, you're, for sure, that Chink's probably on the payroll. Mm-hmm. Up until that, now you're like, he's just a psychotic prison person but like he goes so far in this thing you're like i'm pretty sure that you know the warden's on board with telling him what to do up till now i've only known that manly and his goon squad was on the warden's payroll now you're pretty sure he's got one of the inmates too
1: Mm, for sure Uh, craig cohen football game
0: yeah again this was one of those scenes that was slightly telegraphed where we saw him playing um, football with the kids at the beginning and like Jeff ferry said what prison movie isn't going to have a football game here and sly's already done the you know um imprisoned sports movie with victory so i I thought it was a cool scene um it's a good way to always add some excitement to a a movie where you're sort of in a fixed location Um, i like the physicality of the scene i love the late hit that chink gives him and I really, really love the the shots that we get throughout the movie, including the sequence where you sort of see the warden just observing things from his perch, if you will. And uh, I, I really like the way they set up the fact that there is more to the relationship between Chink and Sly and the hold that the warden has over certain people there. So uh just a, a, a really cool sequence that also tells a lot of story
1: agreed and another great thing about this sequence and I, I don't know if people really appreciate this and i think this is something that makes me appreciate stallone uh, a lot more is the fact that there was no stunt double for him and he was actually taking all of those hits uh from all of those inmates so you're not you're not seeing you know some other stand in uh, getting beat down you're actually seeing stallone taking a lot of damage and I really respect that, that he's he's such a physical guy and he sells it so, so well. So and we've seen that in other movies that he's done as well, that he prefers to do his own stunt work a lot of the time. So uh, carrying on that tradition through this this football sequence. And if you go back and you watch, it's quite a long game, actually. Yeah. You do see a lot of hits and a lot of physical action going on there.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a really, really good point, Jeff.
1: All right. So, next up, we get a, a, a short little scene uh, between Leone and Drumghoul. So, Leone is asleep, uh, seemingly after this whole football game has gone down. He looks like he's recovered quite a bit. So, this could be a little ways uh, away from the, from the football incident. But uh, Leone is awoken in his cell by Drumghoul kind of knocking his metal ring on his finger between the bars of Leone's cell. And you get this look from Leone, and he says, you won't break me. So you still get the feeling that Leone's still in good shape. Uh, he's still he's still with it. He's still up for the fight. And, uh, you know, Drum Ghoul's apparently not giving up. So next up in the morning, Eclipse shows up at uh, Leone's cell and offers him a job in the shop that he refused to give him before. So I guess we're, we're meant to understand that the football game gave Eclipse a little bit more respect for Leone and Eclipse is willing to put himself potentially in harm's way uh, by aligning himself with Leone uh, against the Warden. So we get a little bit more uh, backstory here as Leone's working in the shop with Eclipse and he tells Eclipse a little bit about the the old man who took him off the street at 14 to teach him the trade and, and get him working in the auto shop. And we find out the real reason why Leone was in prison in the first place. And there were some some teenagers, I guess, or some guys that came into the shop and roughed up uh, the old man, his mentor. And the police wouldn't do anything to track them down because either they were you know in cahoots with the cops or there was some sort of a dirty deal going down. So uh, Leone took it upon himself to get revenge and wound up getting eighteen months in jail. So, Even the reason why he was in prison in the first place is slightly noble. So you never really – the movie never sets Leone up as a true criminal. So you you, you almost could get the feeling like maybe he didn't deserve to be there in the first place. But we also get the introduction of Maybelline, the 1965 Mustang that's been dead for 15 years. It's Eclipse's dream to get this car up and running, but Eclipse is a body guy and it's pretty advantageous that Leone happens to be there because he can uh, rebuild the motor and all the other working parts, which leads us to another Stallone movie staple, and that's our montage sequence. (laughs) So um, we get a montage where uh, a lot of the characters that are on Leone's side come in to help, so we got First Base learning how to do some body work. Uh, Dallas seems to be using his wheeling and dealing skills with the guards to get parts that they need. And even the uh, the crazy bird feeding guy from outside gets in on the action uh, during the sequence. So uh, we also get some some friendship building, horsing around in the paint room, spraying each other with paint guns. So almost a Zoolander gasoline fight type sequence there. But all in all, interesting montage. And they wind up getting uh, the car working. So Craig Cohen thoughts on this sequence.
0: I think it's a really good sequence, again, at sort of dispensing uh, information for us and just really showing how guys like this might build up a bond while in prison. I also really, really love the way they finally reveal how he ended up in prison. And I just really think the fact that they waited this long to give it to us is really—it's uh, really effective because... Um, I'm sure there are certain viewers that were still waiting to see why he was there to decide how they really felt about this guy and whether or not they wanted to root for him, which is always sort of the hardest thing to do uh, in a in a prison movie. So to see that he really is sort of a pure or at least a, a morally right dude, I think is really, really effective at this point in the movie.
1: Mm. So, Jeff Ferry, uh, Leone remaining defiant, uh, Maybelline and the montage?
2: Well, I mean, the only thing about the montage is at this point in Stallone's career, you're wondering why it took this long. (laughs) I mean, we're like 35, 40 minutes in before the montage. You know, I I like to start off with a montage these days. Yeah, it's a pretty typical, we're building a car type montage. It's, uh, you know, in his uh, many montages, I say it's right in the middle. It's an okay one. Kind of reminded me of the A team putting a car together, actually. I was hoping they'd put something, uh, you know, put some, uh, big metal spikes on the front of it and crash out the front. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, they finally reveal what he did, but I mean, at this point, you realize that whatever he did, one of two things. He either did something noble or he was framed for something he didn't do. There's no way they're gonna, at this point, they're gonna reveal, oh yeah, by the way, he, uh, you know, he killed his girlfriend. (laughs) Like, you're not going to find that out at this point. Like he, it kind of turns the movie around to like, yeah, yeah, actually, you know, he's in for, he's in for burglary. You know, he, he robbed 18 banks.
1: All right. So the aftermath of the montage, uh, we find Leone and first base are sitting in the car. And this is kind of where we get a little bit more backstory and actually a little bit of sob story from, from the kid and talking about, uh, how he had a girlfriend and uh, it didn't work out, her her brothers didn't care for him and things like that. And uh, through through this uh, this storytelling, this little heart to heart, the the kid winds up getting a little bit depressed, uh, especially about never having learned how to drive. And I think this is where you start to really get a little bit of an understanding of uh, why Leone feels uh, something for this kid. But I think he sees a little bit of himself in him. Uh, as a you know a young guy who who was in bad a bad place as Leone was in a bad place when he was a kid and maybe he's trying to help out and so he decides to teach the kid how to drive in the best way that he can and that's pushing him around the garage uh, in the Mustang so I thought this was a really poignant scene where uh, he's he's trying to get the kid to imagine that they're driving down city streets and uh, they're seeing girls and that now they're in Atlantic City driving down past the boardwalk and. Uh, he's seeing all sorts of really cool stuff and having a really good time and I think the kid finally starts to buy into it and I thought that was a really touching moment and, and it, it really kind of sold the uh, the fatherly nature of Leone's character throughout that sequence and I think this is where things start to go a little bit awry though and the the kid is insisting on wanting to start the car just so he can hear the engine roar and uh, you know and, and Sly makes the, the poor decision to let him start the car up and as we would imagine, the kid decides to tear out of the, the garage and winds up out in the yard and he's spinning around and, and driving him through the football field that we just saw. And, of course, the guards start firing at the car in an effort to to stop him. And and it, you thought he may have gotten shot and died there. But Meisner stops, steps in and stops the guards from firing. And, and Leone actually talks the kid down and gets him out of the car. And at this point. Uh, Leone winds up taking the fall uh, for the kid when the warden comes out and decides that uh, Leone should take the punishment and go in the hole. Uh, Leone doesn't protest at all, and he takes the punishment. So he winds up getting a six-week stint in the hole. So, uh, And to add insult to injury, the warden forces Leone to watch as Chink and his uh, compatriots destroy the Mustang with baseball bats. So. This is a, a, a lot to to take in in one uh, sequence, but Craig Cohen, uh, thoughts overall on, on all the things that just transpired?
0: Yeah, I think this is a great setup for ultimately what happens after that six weeks. Um, I think seeing, you know, Stallone really trying to convince this kid that prison doesn't have to be prison um, in your mind. And, it's funny because we later learn that maybe he's sort of selling an idea that he doesn't even believe in himself, and it's it's more like as long as things are going good, I'm good. The funniest thing about this scene is the kid goes from not knowing how to drive to tearing through that um that mm-hmm. yard at the prison like a really seasoned <laughs> driver. <laughs> Um, and then also you get some nice subtle acting from Frank McRae when they're destroying the car, and you see the tear streaming down his face.
1: Oh yeah, good, good one, good one. Uh, Jeff Ferry, thoughts on that sequence?
0: Well, yeah, like you said, it would have been more, uh, it have
2: been more accurate if he had been stopping and starting as he drove out of there. Like if you ever seen somebody who's first learning how to drive, where they go, drive brake, drive break. I guess that would be as cinematic though if he was driving three miles an hour. And he hit the hit the garage door and it just bent a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, he when he gets out there, I the first, well, first time I saw it, the only time I'd seen it, I assumed that was when he was going to die. I was like, oh, here's what happens. He's going to make a run for the gate and he's going to get shot by the guards. So that was a nice change that they, I mean, they hold it off for a little while. But they didn't give it to me when I thought I was going to get it. And you get to see Meisner calling off the guards from, you know, Wildly shooting into a crowd, <laughs> you know, it's they're just as likely to hit any of the other inmates at that point who are all standing around. And like you said, you get to see Frank McRae cries. They're smashing up his car. I mean, it was a good scene. And like you said, this is this is basically your turning point when it goes from like he's having a tough time, but he seems to be getting ahead of it right now. And this is where when he gets sent to the hole, that's where it kind of it all falls apart, and it basically takes us into like Act Three.
1: Yeah, I, yeah. Good, good. I'm glad you mentioned that because this this sequence where Leone is in the hole is, is, I think, one of the toughest sequences for me to watch in this movie because it's clearly torture. So the setup is that you know Leone is in a tiny, uh, little uh, terrible room, and every hour a really bright light comes on. He has to stand up, face the camera and the light, state his name and his prisoner number. And, you know, if you think about it, he's there for six weeks. So every hour on the hour for six straight weeks, he's got to do that. And, and th- I think that's enough to drive anybody insane. So this is clearly a setup, a torture setup by the warden. And, you know, we get a couple of really good looks at the room and it's just it's bare stone. It's, it's hard, exposed brick, very poor conditions. And, you know, we see the warden and Manly looking at the video feed and watching uh, Sly doing some exercises to try to keep himself in shape while he's stuck in there. And next thing you know, you know, he's been going at this for a little while, and the warden decides to to make it more intense and cuts his food rations in half. And, you know, we see also see we see Manly going through the mail, the prisoner's mail, and pulling out all of Leone's letters from his girlfriend. And uh, so we, we see that, you know, all of the things that may have gotten to gotten to leone to give him a little bit more hope have been stripped away uh during this and one thing that i thought was really interesting that they did here was uh during this sequence they pull leone out and they throw him in a cold shower and then they immediately cut to a shot of the beat-up mustang sitting out in the rain so uh you know we see a a beat-up you know leone who's close to broken and right right before we see a broken and beat-up mustang in the same situation so we also see he goes through some, some visions of his prior life with his girlfriend and uh, maybe trying to keep himself sane. But finally, uh, Leonie cracks and he can't say his name or his number anymore, which you know, leads to yet another torturous beatdown uh, from Manly, which is actually thankfully broken up by Meisner because we don't know how much more Leonie could have taken. And we find out from Manly that the warden had ordered that beat up and uh, this is where Officer Braden, the the officer whose hand was held on the uh, the gas decontamination chamber, he, they they didn't allow him to turn it off. This is the same guy. And uh, he protests and winds up throwing his nightstick on the ground and says this is not what he's in for. And he's going to quit. And uh, thankfully, uh, cooler heads prevailed and uh, the the guards are all sent away and Meisner. Gives Leone the, the his times up in the in the hole. So uh, this was a really tough sequence for me to watch, and I, I, I'm not sure how it was for you guys. But uh, Craig Cohen, how did you feel about this?
0: Yeah, it is a tough scene, and again, I think it's really completely due to the fact that Stallone really delivers here in terms of showing the uh, the slow mental breakdown of the character. But also the physical breakdown of the character, where by the end of this sequence, when they're dragging him out, he looks beaten down. He looks weak. He looks different than he did going in. And mm-hmm. it's more than them just giving him a little bit of makeup. It looks like he went through some kind of physical change. And and I'm not sure entirely what Stallone did, but you you can imagine that. You know, it wouldn't have been hard for him to go in and make a slight tweak to his diet or his workout routine to sell that fact. And I think that's another thing that Stallone really brings to the table that a lot of actors can or, or won't is that complete control over over his body and, and his ability to present himself certain ways. And we've seen him different sizes in different movies. And I think that's what's really most impressive about this sequence is the, you know, the the mental and the physical breakdown. And and that really sells it. And and you're 100% right, Jeff, in that it's really a tough scene to watch.
1: Yeah, Jeff Ferry, uh, six weeks in the hole.
2: Like you said, I mean, I don't know that I would last one day having to get up every hour as they turn on the light. I also do enjoy that they, at the beginning, he's trying to fight it off, like he's doing the push-ups. He's trying to keep himself in shape and you're like, all right, you know, I'm on his side. I think he can he can make it. And then you don't know how far into it, but it gets to a point where he can't even get up anymore. And the guards go in and it's so bad when the guards go in and drag him out of there to beat the crap out of him. At that point, I would have been happy just to be dragged out of there. <laughs> and that's fine. You can drag me out of there and beat the hell out of me. That At least it got me out of that room for five minutes. <laughs> I mean, it could it would have been worse to get beat in there. And like you said, and they they drag him out of there at the end. I don't know if their if their end game was to just beat him to death in his cell or on his way up, but uh yeah, they get broken off by Meisner, and you get the scene with the uh, the other guard who's not a sadistic psychopath like the other two, which is a good scene because you have all three levels there. You have the guys that are totally in with the warden, then you have like the younger guy who wants no part of it, and then you kind of have Meisner stuck in the middle. Mm-hmm. where he's still he's a company man he's still with the warden but he's got no time for the other like he hates manly which is awesome like he he delivers the line i say at the beginning when he screams at him but uh yeah i do like him hating manly but i mean it, it is a tough scene it is not easy to watch <laughs> you you're so happy when he gets back you never thought you'd be happy to see someone get tossed back into a jail cell you're like oh my yeah. god he's back in there
1: <laughs> i agree and so Leone is back. Is getting led back to his cell by Meisner. He's clearly in very bad shape. Um, not looking good at all. As Craig Cohen referenced, he's got some bags under his eyes, and and he generally looks really haggard and and even a little bit thinner. Um, Meisner at least seems to have a little sympathy uh, for a situation. And and Braden, Officer Braden, comes in uh, to take his cuffs off. And despite all of the the torture that. Leonie has just been through, he attempts to uh, joke around a little bit and exchange pleasantries with Brayden, who we find out has hidden all of the letters uh, from Leone's girlfriend in his bed. So uh, we see that some of the guards are shifting over to Leone's side. So maybe a little brief glimmer of hope. And I, I absolutely love the emotion. Again, more nonverbal acting, emotion from Salone as he's reading these letters and you, you can see the, the relief. And after what he's just been through, uh, he realizes that she's still out there. She still cares. She's written him all these letters. And uh, maybe that gives him a little bit of energy uh, to get back in the game and, and serve out the rest of the sentence, despite the, the potential torture that could be coming down the road for him. So finally, a little bit of emotional payoff uh, for the audience who's been put through the ringer with uh, Leone at this point. So, Uh, After his six weeks, he returns to the auto shop and and conveniently all of his friends are there waiting for him. And uh, first base, of course, being the hothead, wants to get revenge on Chink right out of the gate. But, of course, he waited for Leone to get back for that. And this is where we get an awesome back and forth and we get a really great, impassioned, angry, frustrated speech from Stallone as uh, first base is... Uh, giving him crap for going back on his own avi- advice about protecting what's yours and and uh, protecting your people and leone just goes back at him and as he's started to realize that you know this is the warden's world this is drum universe everything in it is owned by him and there's really nothing that anybody can do everybody is powerless if if ghoul wants to to do you in he's going to do it and and it was like a two stage. So he kind of seems to calm down a little bit, and then as he's walking out, he turns around and, and has another uh, a bit of an angry bout. And I thought that these range of emotions from Slime. We see him in his his uh, cell reading the letters, and he's he's emotionally he looks like he's just just about to to lose it. And then you see this extreme of anger uh, as he gets back, and his friends jump down his throat and, and attempt to get him to to get into a fight. So Craig Cohen. This emotional ride uh, between the torture and and the auto shop.
0: Yeah, I, I think this was a really, really great payoff for that scene I talked about or that we talked about earlier where he's teaching first base to drive. And it really shows and makes you wonder how much of what he says he really believes or if this whole speech is sort of driven by what he went through and is he really really broken down to return to um steve's email he says that this um section of the movie has one of his favorite lines when he's yelling at his friends and says this whole damn place is his and sly's voice actually cracks when he says it and as far as he can tell this is the only movie of this um of his where that happens and uh I thought that was a really neat detail that I actually looked out for because I read Steve's email before watching the movie for this sit-down. And I think that really adds to the sequence. And uh, it, it's a really, really great take um, in a really, really good scene. And this really sort of took me back to maybe, I want to say, the end of Rambo First Blood Part Two hmm. where he's giving that I want what they want speech. I'm really trying to find... The last time he tapped into this kind of this kind of acting ability, because it's been a while at this point since we've seen it.
1: Hmm. Agreed. Jeff Ferry.
0: Yeah, like you said, it's a
2: it's a good scene. It's 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 like his I think the problem comes down to with his with his guys is he's given guys advice on how to survive in prison for guys that have got like 10 years left, 15 years, left, 20 years left. He knows in the back of his mind, he's got, a, he, I think later on he says six weeks. I don't know how much time he has left at this point. Yeah. You have a different outlook when you have a couple months left than when you have the rest of your life. Yeah, if you have the rest of your life, you better find a way to deal with it because you're in that the rest of your life. If you have a couple months left, your job is to shut up and do your time and get out of there. And I think that's when the advice he's given is not bad advice for first base who's now stuck there, but it's not what he's going to do. At this point, after everything he's gone through, he just wants to somehow get out of this place. That's what he's saying. It's all his. It's whatever. He's not giving up, but he's trying. He's like surrendering himself to the fact of like I can't beat this guy. The best I can hope to do is to survive and get out of this place.
1: Yeah, and his friends finally come around to that way of thinking in this next mess hall scene. So we see Leone sitting by himself, eating, and of course Chink Weber shows up with the pony from the mustang uh, on his belt buckle you know trying to goad leone into uh another fight scenario but uh he t- winds up taking leone's lunch and leaving him with just a fork full of something look like beans possibly and all of his uh, auto shop friends wind up showing up and donating some of their their meals to him and uh, you know telling him that you know we realize you only have a few weeks left to be here, so you know you, you we think you made the right move we're kind of we're sorry we gave you crap about it, now we kind of see things your way and um also right after that, we finally get something that we we expected the whole time, and we see Chink Weber in the warden's office, and the warden is kind of admonishing him a little bit about how he's not pushing Leone hard enough, and if he can't deliver on what the warden is uh was paying him to do, then he's gonna have to find somebody else who can do it. And he suggests that Chink Weber has to push in just the right place. So we get a little bit of a foreshadowing as to what's going to happen next. And um it doesn't take long for that to actually happen and uh we see the the friends are all back together again and they're they're racing cockroaches for money and and not long after they start Manly and his partner show up and to pull the kid off onto some work detail so they take first base out and they bring him to a, a a gym and one of the things i really loved about this scene is when they're outside the door and and coming into the gym you can see this, the, the gym is very very dark and all you can see are their silhouettes and some sunlight streaming through the door and it just it felt very ominous and scary and that like you knew something bad was going to happen Um, They leave the kid in there for a while, and they tell him to clean up, but we see that he's in there for quite a while before anything actually happens. He's playing a game of pool by himself, he's smoking a cigarette by himself, and all of a sudden a couple of guys slip out of the shadows, and uh, the odds are clearly clearly against the kid. He he tries to defend himself as best he can, but uh, he gets overpowered by a huge uh, gang, and, and Chink Weber shows up. And it's a, this is a pretty brutal scene as well. This, this is always a little tough for me to to watch. And so they, they pin him down uh, in, in a weight set. And Shank Weber drops a humongous barbell on him, essentially right on his chest and his neck. And uh, that's pretty much it. And it cuts to Leone is doing some work. And another inmate alerts him to the fact that they got the kid in the gym. And we get another fantastic emotional scene where leone's running down slides, runs into the room throws the weights off the kid and kind of collapses on the floor and and is muttering to himself the kid's only 20 years old you know grabs a weight throws it in the in a shirt wraps it up and heads outside looking for chink weber who he knows immediately is the culprit of this and of course we get the fight ensues and uh a lot of things happen throughout this fight. And, you know, if we see Manly stopping the guards from interfering and this is an hour and 13 minutes into the movie and we finally get to see Sly in a fight scene, uh, which, which is something. And we see Chink has the ice pick again, uh, but it winds up being kicked away. Sly gets the upper hand and goes to kill Weber in the same vein that, that he previously killed first base in, but, at the last minute, he decides not to do it, uh, grabs his necklace back and immediately gets stabbed by another inmate. So uh, a lot a lot has happened, a lot to take in and a lot to talk about. Jeff Ferry. Yeah, my question is that the uh, I mean, they lure the kid in there for his
2: eventual death. I mean, it, I mean, it's it's a very interesting way to kill somebody. Also, I believe there's a Danny Trejo sighting in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which you know you're in trouble when Danny Trejo shows up wherever you're at. You know you're in for a rough time. So they get the kid. Sly takes the, um, the weight and goes out there and starts to fight with Chank and they have their big fight and he doesn't kill him, which is all fine and good. So he won't have to do 10 more years for killing somebody, but, um, you still grab the weight out of a weight room and beat somebody's face in with it. Mm-hmm. Even if he doesn't get shanked, he's not getting out in six weeks. <laughs> like. <laughs> that's done like you started a fight and almost killed somebody i mean if the warden hadn't i mean if he hadn't got shanked the warden's still gonna be all like i can still hold this guy for like another year oh you know he just he just assaulted another inmate you know and then in the next year i'll find another way to torture this guy but instead he gets he gets shanked and again when he gets shanked i don't know if the point of the shank is it just to hurt him or were they trying to kill him this is the second time this has happened. It's like the other beatdown. I'm not quite sure. Where, did he want him to die, or he's like, I just want to torture him. So stab him and make him stay here.
1: Mm. Yeah, at that point, I wasn't really sure if the guy that shanked him was just one of um, one of Weber's guys acting on his own.
0: Yeah, it almost seemed like a rogue action to me. Yeah, because it's really it's it's a risk to take to disable a guy where they stabbed him, um, is potentially a, a pretty fatal wound.
2: Yeah, I was pretty sure he stabbed him right in the kidney. I thought it was That's game over for him right there.
0: Yeah. The thing I really like about this sequence is, you know, first base has really sort of been set up, and um, the character arc has pretty much played itself out in in the way that everybody expected, but it's still effective. But the really um remarkable part of the scene is how Leone handles it and how he sort of understands that everything that is happening now is a direct result of how he has been interacting with the warden. And this was clearly payback for his actions. And you see him sort of realize that if he had done things differently things would have played out differently. And you see that emotion boil over. And he really does go out there with the intent of causing severe physical harm and not caring about the consequences until the point where he almost kills Chink Weber and thinks better of it, realizing, I think, realizing more that he's not a murderer um, as opposed to saying, oh, I don't want to do all this time. I think he's resigned to the fact now that, the warden's going to make it his objective to keep him there as long as he as he can
1: absolutely so sly is landed in the infirmary and uh we see dallas come in uh he's obviously the the laundry guy now somehow so he's weaseled himself a new job and this is this is even more emotional torture so the warden decides that he's going to allow leone's girlfriend to uh to come in and visit him he's reinstated leone's uh, privileges Somehow and, and uh, you know, we, we want to believe for Leone's sake that maybe the warden has uh, maybe he felt the stab was enough and he was going to allow him to uh, to finally serve out his few weeks and, and leave. But uh, Manley and his partner lead her in. They draw some curtains across and just as they're getting cozy, they come back in. Manly storms back in and says the warden, they change, the warden has changed his mind and it's time for the visit to be over. And uh, it's pretty pretty jarring, and uh, we we almost see a slight altercation as uh, you know Leone tells them not to put their hands on her, and and she winds up leaving, and it, it's it's pretty pretty bad. And so next thing we see Leone gets visited; he's feeling a little bit better, and a guy in a wheelchair rolls up and claims to have known him from the same prison. Uh, that, that he escaped from the one that, uh, Tom Sizemore's character attempted to, to trick him into believing they were in together. Uh, but this time this guy doesn't fall for the A block trick. He, uh, he says, yeah, that, that prison didn't have an A block and, uh, tries to get, uh, a little bit closer, uh, to Sly by sharing some of his, uh, hard time stories. And he kind of lures him in a little bit and then drops a hammer on him saying that he's getting out in a few days and he's getting paid. Uh, I think it was like a couple thousand dollars to rape a girl. And then he pulls out a picture of Leone's girlfriend and says he's going to get an extra hundred dollars for every time she screams. So the guy takes off. And, you know, Manly, of course, who's obviously in on it, won't let Leone use the phone to warn her and pretends like he's kind of crazy and says that there was nobody there at all. So uh, this is obviously yet another setup. Uh, attempting to get Leone to to boil over, and uh, which he eventually does. So, uh, Jeff Ferry, how do you think about this?
2: I'm going to give the screenwriter a couple notes on this scene. <laughs> um, I feel it would have been better if, like, they have like the weird the scene where the girlfriend comes in, she gets the ID, and then you know they're kind of have like a little conjugal visit accent. I feel like it would have been better if if she would have just came because they haven't let her visit at all. Like, they're totally been stonewalling her the whole time. Let her come in, take her picture, because they need the picture for later. And I would have just enjoyed it rather have her meet with Stallone, like a normal thing. That way, Stallone is still thinking that everything's good. Okay, looks like I'm getting out of here, everything's fine. And then you set him up with the, the guy that comes in. Hey, you know, how you doing, blah, 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 yeah, I'm doing time. I'm getting paid $2,000. And then have the guy whip out the picture. Cause now you've had five minutes go by where you think everything's fine.
1: Mm-hmm. And then
2: this guy just slams you and says, Yep, I'm getting out to rape and murder your girlfriend. And then gets up and walks away. I feel like that would have had more impact. You knew something was hanky already after the whole situation with the guards coming in while he's trying to, while his woman's half undressed. Yeah. I mean, who am I? I mean, what has Stallone ever done, you know, script writing wise? What does he know? So. You know, i just like to give him these tips now and again. I mean, granted, for a script that apparently was coming in day by day, I guess it was
1: pretty good. <laughs> Craig Cohen, awkward sequence.
0: I think the the only aspect of the sequence that really plays sort of weird for me, and I think I can forgive the character it, but it's still kind of weird, is how accepting he is that all of a sudden, now that he's been injured, that everybody's attitude towards him is going to change. And it might be the fact that he's just so relieved to see his girlfriend that he lets his guard down. But I think the scene really, as weird as it is from a character point, it really drives home what's going to happen next with that total and and complete feeling of being completely hopeless, knowing that somebody's going to go out there and hurt somebody you love and you can't do anything about it. And it really sort of drives home his mission for the rest of this movie. So in that sense, I think it, it accomplishes what it needs to accomplish.
1: Mm, agreed. The only thing, the only real uh, question I had about this scene was, I mean, I, I don't know how comfortable if I was in Stallone's position, I don't know how comfortable I would be uh, seeing her walking in actually into the infirmary uh, with Manley, knowing what he knows about that guard and his partner i I think i would have been filled with a a sense of dread for my girlfriend's safety knowing what they'd done to him and knowing that the kid had just died i would have my mind would have immediately jumped to the fact that the warden was planning to do something to her uh to get to him
0: right yeah
1: so at any rate uh leone decides he's going to break out and he is going to attempt to get Dallas to help him. And uh, at first Dallas resists, but Frank offers to take Dallas with him, which quickly turns turns him around. And so the escape sequence starts, and it's uh, a typical assault: a guard, lock him in, uh, lock him in an, an area, and they only have a certain amount of time to get out. So uh, we see them uh, jumping down into some tunnels and ripping through some fences, and. This is where things get a little bit strange, where they they come to a, a, a junction and Leone knows where to go, but Dallas stops him and tells him that no, wait a minute, the steam plant is actually this way, and they get into a little couple a line exchange where uh, Leone is pretty sure uh, where where he's supposed to go, but I, I guess something in his mind uh, tells him maybe I'm wrong, and he decides to follow Dallas anyway and runs right into. Uh, some guys in some riot gear. And then we get the big reveal that Dallas is a turncoat. And as Drum Ghoul walks in, uh, Dallas spills the beans that he and Drum had made some kind of a deal. But of course, in, in true villain fashion, uh, in, in, in true Darth Vader fashion... Uh, Donald Sutherland changes his mind and says that he doesn't deal with escaping prisoners and pretty much hangs Dallas out to dry by telling him he's going back into Gen Pop, where apparently he's already burned some bridges and, uh, he's, he's pretty much a dead man once he gets back there. Uh, so the warden, uh, reveals that this is an automatic 10 years added onto Leone's sentence and he's going to do everything he can to make sure Leone is there for the rest of his life and, To top it off, he reveals that they they reveal that the guard that uh, was standing in the background is actually the guy that posed as the potential rapist uh, that got Sly into this predicament in the first place. So uh, Jeff Ferry, uh, thoughts on the escape sequence?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure at what point you realize that Dallas is not on his side. I mean, for sure you realize that once he's like, no, 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 let's go this way. You're like, well, yeah, you're done. Because you're gonna go that way, and that's gonna be your big setup. And the uh, Donald Sutherland does the turn that you know, not that you expect it, but you know Donald Sutherland's a creep. I never do understand why they, the villains, always make that turn right then. Why not make the guy think that you're gonna let him go or do whatever, and have him quietly walk away instead of revealing your plan to him right then, so he'll try to help the guy that you're trying to get rid of. But whatever, I do, I. I do like from a writing perspective that they show you the guy that was supposed to be the one that was going off for the rape and murdering, and he's revealed to be a guard. Because then at least you don't have that hanging over you like, well, no matter what happens here, there's still a guy out there going after his girlfriend. So at that point, that brings everything back inside the prison. Everything's in-house. Whatever happens is staying there. There's not some outside thing that Stallone can't take care of.
1: Excellent point. Craig Cohen.
0: This sequence for me is really where you get excited that you're getting to the exciting climax of the film, and I like the way that Dallas makes him second guess which way they're going to go. I love the the whole sort of Dallas arc that we get here where, of course, the warden isn't going to come through on the deal that they made, and then... Dallas sort of gets his last shot at redemption. But I also like the fact that we finally sort of get permission to not like these people and to not feel bad that these sort of officers of the law are going to get dispatched by Sly. I, I think it's sort of giving us permission to uh, to root for him and enjoy what's going to play out over the next couple minutes.
1: Definitely. That leads us directly into a fight that we've been waiting the entire movie to see, and that is Leone versus the guard Manly. And uh, it's a it's a pretty well paced fight, I think. It's it's um a little realistic and a little unrealistic at the same time. But you know the, the it gets goes back and forth. Uh, they each have the upper hand, and and then they each lose the upper hand. Slive gets maced. The fight goes back and forth quite a bit. And uh, Leone winds up thro- beating Manly down and throwing him into the, the same pool of water uh, where, where Dallas has been thrown uh, after he was beaten down by the guards. So at this point, Dal- we see Dallas is actually still alive, but in, in, in some pain. And he calls out to Leone, who's just seemingly won this fight as, as uh, Manley's doing the dead man's float uh, in the water. And, and as Dallas is pleading for help and asking uh, Leone not to leave him there, we see that Manley's actually still alive, jumps out of the water a little bit and, and wraps a chain around uh, Leone's throat. So at this point, it looks like uh, Sly is, is about, to, about to expire. But Dallas grabs uh, and uh, breaks off an electrical cord and threatens to put it into the water and electrocute both himself and Manley uh, at the same time. So Manley uh, lets Leone go and starts to egg dallas on a bit and and you know telling me he doesn't have the guts to do it and finally dallas plunges the the wire into the water electrocuting himself and manly at the same time so we lose uh, a potential redeemed friend and and one of the uh, the main villains of the film uh, at the same time so any quick thoughts on the fight sequence uh, between leone and manly craig
0: It's just such a great release because this is one of those characters who you've been designed to hate from the minute he's come on screen. There is no sort of balance with this character. This is probably the most despicable character in the movie uh, in terms of not having any redeeming values. So to finally see him get his comeuppance um, is a real treat. Jeff Ferry. Oh yeah,
2: he. I mean he's even more of a he's a more horrible character than chink is i mean because he's he's a guard at least I and mean, the other guy's a prisoner he's supposed to be a dirtbag yeah but like you said they set all these guards up and they they make it very apparent that each of these guys deserves what they're about to get <laughs> like these guys are scum so when they get killed or get their faces burned off you're like okay well he deserved it and yet dallas has his last minute electrocution because manly does that very intelligent thing of Antagonizing a guy who has the means to kill you. <laughs> I, I I always wonder why people don't go the other way and beg, be like, no no no, you know, I'm sorry. But again, everyone thinks like, oh, you don't have the guts. Why would you say that to somebody?
1: <laughs> well, that this enables Leone to continue his escape attempt or seeming escape attempt. We see him uh, climbing through some pipes and things. As we also see a riot squad. Uh, being sent to investigate what's going on down in the, the steam area. And we get a, an interesting exchange between Meisner and Warden Drumgoole. Meisner seems to be on to the fact that something fishy is going on. He's questioning why Leone would attempt to escape and, and kill a guard when he only has three weeks left to go. And I, I think that's really great that Meisner has been playing this middle ground uh, throughout it and he's finally starting to put two and two really together and understand that something really uh, sinister is going on here. So, a uh, great stunt moment for Sly when he jumps from the roof of one building to a, a metal ladder on a, on an out, an exterior wall of a, what looks like a silo of some kind. Sly a returns to uh, the the well room, the pipe room where we saw him drop the cigarette down earlier in the movie and he makes it look like he escaped through that area to, to mislead them, and the it works, and Meisner and um, some other guards are out searching in a pond outside, and as they're out there, Meisner says that he wants to call in the local PD to help with the search, and the warden shuts him down, saying it's an internal matter, so once again, you know, the warden is, is trying to, to, to cover up his own tracks and not, not have anybody he can't control uh, look into it, so this sequence comes to a, an abrupt halt when Leone sneaks up behind uh, Drumgool, uh, who's watching on some monitors trying to find where Leone went. And uh, we see a, a knife being lifted up under Drumgool's throat. And Leone says, I could have got out, but I'm not going to spend my life running from you. And he leads uh, Drumgool into the electro- same electrocution chamber that uh, we saw Sly in earlier in the movie and uh, Sly starts giving a rundown of all of his friends who, who have died uh, at the hands of the warden's plans. And uh, all the while he's strapping the warden into the electric chair uh, that, that he was bragging about having refurbished earlier on in the movie. And, uh, you know, Leone seems to know how this whole machine operates. He's priming it up, getting it to work. He's pulling some levers down. And finally he's, he's got his hand on the last lever and as he is uh, looking like he's about to to execute the warden, we see the the police pulling up outside. All the guards are outside with guns and, and Leone ties his hand, straps his hand to the, the final lever uh, in an attempt to ensure that even if they do take him out or they do shoot him, uh, that when he goes down, the warden is going down with him. And he even goes so far as to try to uh, antagonize the guards into shooting him, uh, you know, yelling, shoot me, shoot me. And uh, we get the reveal that, that Drum Ghoul starts to beg for his own life, and he uh, gives a, a confession, uh, a, a potential deathbed confession, that uh, he did set Leone up, and everything that he's saying was true. And uh, we get a kind of almost a, a almost funny moment Uh, I'm not sure even if it's if it's funny or if uh, I I always got a chuckle out of it where, uh, you know, Sly pulls the lever down and and nothing actually happens. And then he reveals that he pulled the the fuse out. Yeah. So uh, he he didn't actually have any intention of killing the warden at all. What he really wanted to do was get the confession out of him. And uh, thankfully, Meisner was there to hear the whole thing. So quite a a bit of of sequence there. Uh, Jeff Ferry.
2: I mean it's a great scene leading up to that like he leaves just enough clues there for the guards to make them think that he's out there swimming around in the pond they they're all out there looking for him and he you know while everybody's gone he's able to sneak up and grabs the warden I mean at that point you just got to you got to remember that movie logic is in uh in play here that yeah. I understand the man had the electric chair refurbished it's highly unlikely he'd still hooked to the electrical grid <laughs> yeah. I mean I don't know that anyone would go that far where I mean, he gets with Leone at first, and he's kind of like, well, you don't know how to work this machine. But, I mean, it's only a series of levers. I don't know that it's the most complicated machine ever to run. All he has to do is prime it, and then, I mean, this guy, you knew this guy could work with engines. He's not an idiot. He might have been able to figure it out.
1: And, yeah, don't you think he might have needed a key or something? Not like anybody could just come in and turn it on.
2: I don't know, though, because you look at, like, look at airplanes and stuff, like... You could walk in, you could just take a fighter plane and take off in it. There's nothing, there's no key to it. <laughs> I mean, if something's supposed to be protected enough, you don't need something like that. Plus, of course, the whole thing of, there's no reason it would be hooked to the electrical grid. <laughs> but, I mean, whatever. I understand. It, it makes for an awesome scene, so I'm, I'm going to allow it. <laughs> you just let that go.
1: Uh, Craig Cohen, are guess... you going to allow it? Oh, sorry, Jeff, you weren't done yet.
2: <laughs> oh, no, it's just a, I mean, it's a great scene. That's why... You can let it go. If if the scene stunk, you'd be like, "Oh, well, that's ridiculous. That that's not going to happen." But it's a really good scene, and the confession from Sutherland—it's a very weaselly confession. So like, he plays it so well. That's why you let it go.
1: <laughs> Craig Cohen,
0: I I will allow it, and I will say that I love everything about this sequence. Beyond Donald Sutherland's perfect. I'm being electrocuted acting. What I really love about this is down to the fact that he is putting his life on the line, Leone is will will show that he is not a murderer, that if for whatever reason these cops do kill him, his arm would drop and they would learn that the fuse had been removed. So I really like the fact that he's not really, he doesn't want the warden's life he just wants that confession, and I like the fact that he's willing to trade his life, even to be vindicated. I think it's an incredibly um, effective ending. I think it's well acted. I think it's well shot, and I think it's really um, a great a great climax for this movie.
1: Excellent, I completely agree. And so the movie has climax. We, we, the warden has been led off in chains. He's been uh, de- arrested uh by Meisner, and um we're not exactly sure what's going to happen to Leone, but uh after a quick fade out and fade in, it's Leone's release day. And apparently he's a big hero because the entire prison has come out to see him off. Uh tons and tons of guys are cheering him as he uh makes the walk towards the gate and and his freedom. And uh Eclipse shows up and, and gives him a, a final cigar to, to bid him farewell. And uh Meisner walks leone out solo and uh, gives him a, uh, a chance to crack one final one final joke uh, that that does get a, a smile out of meisner he compliments uh, says he'll always miss his smile so we get a little bit of a joke at the end some little bit of levity uh between uh, sly and and meisner and we see that the gate opens and sly gets to have one nice rainy kiss with his girlfriend who's waiting outside for him and The credit sequence begins to roll, which is a a nice photo montage of a lot of the things that that happened in the movie. So I guess this is a good point to have our final thoughts on this movie. So who wants to go first?
0: Yeah, I will just jump in and say that um, the final part of Steve's email points out that we're getting this recap, which seems to be um, really effective. And they used it in Rocky 4, so I guess they thought it would be great to use it in this. And we're gonna get it again in Rocky 5. So it's, it's kind of funny to see those, um, those techniques that are carried over from slide film to slide film. Uh, and I gotta say that overall this film, um, like I said, we talked about earlier how this really feels like it could have been a film 10 years earlier in his career. Uh, And I think we're also getting ready to enter a really interesting phase of his career looking forward. So I I think this is one of the stronger non-Rocky, non-Rambo movies from the, the mid to late 80s. And if anything, I think that there's probably a better cut of that movie out there somewhere. I think if you shave... 10 minutes off this movie and make it 98 minutes uh i'd call it almost the perfect stallone movie
1: wow excellent jeff ferry
2: i would agree with that i mean there's definitely some shaving here and there it could be done uh basically anything you cut out with the girlfriend i think would be good but that's <laughs> personal opinion. Uh, i truly enjoy the last moment with meisner when he says i'm really gonna miss your smile and he ge- he just stares blankly back at him but then he gives him like a little grin and lets him go. I mean, he was one of my, like I said, Johnny was one of my favorite characters in the movie, yeah, you know, like he said he leaves, and they have like the the pictures at the end from the same thing from Rocky Four and Five. It reminds me of like it's so that time frame those late eighties right into maybe the early nineties thing to do, just like um, you might have seen the old t v shows that used to end with the freeze frames. It's like mm-hmm. so of its time, like you would never see that now, and like it would be crazy if they did it. <laughs> Where now at the end, you have to sit around and wait for an extra scene. That's the thing we do now. Now we have the extra scene. But mm-hmm. uh, overall, I mean, I really enjoyed the movie. I don't have, I don't have that, um, nostalgia for it. Like, I don't have this nostalgia love for it. For me, it's just a movie that I watched and was good. But I mean, it could have easily been, it could have been a movie from 83. Yeah, I mean, for Stallone, it could have been a movie from like 98. I mean, it's just one of his, it's good. It's above average because they got good people in it. And like I said, it probably could have been a really tight film at 95 minutes, but that would have necessitated somebody having a script before it started. <laughs> so working with what they did, I'm pretty impressed with what they got.
1: Wow. Glad to hear you guys uh, have have a, a good reviews for this film because I, I've been a, a big fan, of this is one of my favorite non-franchise films. Uh, Stallone movies this and then Cobra rank really high for the non-Rocky non-Rambo films for him and you know thinking about it it I've seen it at least a good handful or more of times and I don't think this movie necessarily feels like it's anchored in a certain time period you know I think you guys both alluded to the same thing saying it could have happened in the 1970s and or it could have been a 1998 film I think that you know it, it was made in 1989 but it doesn't doesn't feel like an 80s movie necessarily you know and uh, i i think it has a certain timelessness to it and i i love the cast for the most part like jeff ferry was saying there was some really fantastic casting that was done it was only a couple of questionable moves and i do agree that i think that the movie could be tightened i think for me it they could they could cut a little bit out of maybe the football game uh that that would have been all right that's that did seem a little overlong and There were a couple of other uh, short sequences they could have probably made a little bit shorter. But I think the fact that this movie really didn't have a script and it was being delivered as it was being filmed, I think it still comes off very, very well for for having been kind of a last minute sort of a let's fit this in Sly's availability schedule type of film. So as we move on to to more of the the things that are to come, this, this does mark an interesting turning point for Sly's career as a whole.
0: Yeah. And uh, excellent run through of the movie, Jeff. Thank you so much for sort of taking us through that. I know um, if if anybody was equipped to do it, it was you. And uh, uh-huh. I think we had a, a really excellent discussion. And you pointed out something that I think is really interesting in in that we're recording this while the um, Academy Awards are on the air. And, um, <laughs> yeah. we're sort of sl- showing solidarity to Sly, maybe in the fact that the, the Oscars have really snubbed Sly ever since rewarding yep. him in 1976. So, uh, it's kind of fitting that we're recording, um, our celebration and analysis of one of his movies on Oscar night.
1: Yeah, I agree. I can hear the show from my living room. Uh, it's being watched in my living room, but I'm here locked away in my, uh, <laughs> in my office room recording this with you
0: guys (laughs) so that brings us to the end of our lockup discussion and looking ahead next month we will be jumping into tango and cash which is a movie that um i think has um it's following out there and i know i'm really looking forward to uh to talking it for the show, because admittedly th- this is a movie that I haven't seen as many times as I probably should have. So, uh, so next month we'll be talking Tango and cash and please make sure if you haven't um, that you um, interact with us or follow us on uh, all of our social media platforms. You can reach us um, and er- interact with us on um, Facebook at the Sly cast. And we've been dropping a lot of links to, what's been going on with Creed um and the filming of Creed which is going on as we talk so uh if you're looking for any updates on that we're we're sharing our own links and then also links that um our friend Mike Kunda has been sharing also you can follow us on Twitter at the slycast and you can find us at slycastpodcast.blogspot.com so uh those are all the the places that you can find us. We will share all of those in the show notes. And I guess before we go, uh Jeff Hewlett, anything you want to add?
1: No, it was it was uh, my pleasure to to walk through this movie. Thanks for allowing me uh, that that pleasure and uh, I really had a good time doing a great discussion from both you guys as always.
0: No, oh, excellent. Yes, and thank you. Uh Jeff Ferry.
1: You won't break me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> alright so that brings us to the end of another Slycast the Sylvester Stallone Fan Podcast and we'll see you next time I'll never know what brought me here as if
1: somebody led my hand it seems I've hardly had to steer my course was planned
0: in destiny it guides us all and by its hand we Time enough to catch our breath again. And yeah, we're just another piece of the puzzle, just another part of the plan. How one life touches the other—it's so hard to understand.